0: God is good, amen? Amen. Amen. It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. A couple quick announcements. Uh, Number one, Gary and Michelle, thank you guys for opening your business on December 2nd and uh, making possible for vehicles to be winterized. Thank you, thank you. Then I want to just by way of reminder, encourage everyone, we are in the midst of a fund raiser, we're calling it Kingdom Builders, where our desire is that all of us would be engaged as Kingdom Builders. And so I wanna encourage you to prayerfully consider what you might do even before the year end as we are preparing to move forward in our building program. We are anticipating taking possession of the building and uh, beginning work there in the new year. And so very much want to encourage you to be a part. We have a $50,000 matching gift that has been given. And so we are above $10,000 already that has been uh, quote-unquote faith-given. And uh, so we are asking you also to be a part. We have these also out at the Connection table. We encourage you to pick one of these up, prayerfully consider your part that you might be involved uh, in this year in. So encourage you in that area. Also you'll note out there we have these invite cards. They're small squares like this and it is an invitation to come and be a part of church. Come and be a part of a fellowship. Come and be a part of what God is doing. And so we wanna encourage you to grab a stack of those and let's step out of our proverbial box and let's begin in a greater measure inviting friends, family, coworkers, associates, strangers to come and be a part of what God is doing. Can I get an amen? Amen, amen. well praise the Lord. I wanna give quick testimony as you're turning in your Bibles to Exodus chapter one, I wanna give quick testimony to our Wichita dinner, our Wichita community dinner that we had this past Friday night. I will tell you that many of you uh, from last week's appeal to be a part to step out and to serve in our community many stepped up to the plate so i want to say thank you publicly for your labors thank you Rhonda, for your work and preparation and we had a phenomenal outreach dinner it was absolutely epic there were at least 50 guests that we had and I want you to know and I want you to feel tangibly that this is our church family there and we meet with them once a month and it's the body of Christ and we are encouraging them in faith we're supplying a meal and we're loving on one another and we're loving on them and so I just want to encourage you because God is prompting us to expand and to do more work even in Milwaukee. And so we want to encourage more involvement, more outreach. And so that's just a little plug there. It was an amazing time. I also want to mention next Saturday, the Saturday immediately following Thanksgiving, we have a group that is going to be down on the streets of Portland loving those that are marginalized in their living. And we're inviting you to be a part of that as well. Charlie and Linda Schaefer, who have faithfully served for nearly 14 years, 13 and a half plus years, uh, loving on the streets of Portland, and really our time together on the streets of Portland goes back 20 years, uh, and I know my family has been 30 years. We're doing the exact same thing that God had given us some 30 years ago. We are simply bringing a meal to meet the needs of the outer man. We're loving on people. We're expressing an opportunity to pray with them to help and see God meet the needs of the inner man. We're praying for our city because God has called us to do that in the word of God. And we are also praying for those institutions that help marginalize people in their living. And we're asking God to shut down businesses that represent the kingdoms, if you will, of this world. And we're talking about like pornography and prostitution and that kind of stuff. And God is moving and God is doing great things. But in addition to that, next Saturday... This is short order, short notice. We're taking socks and we're taking hats and possibly even gloves and we need your help. It would be amazing that if our team next week, number one, had more folks, so folks come, see Charlie and Linda, will you guys just wave your hands right here? See these two, we need you. Will you step out of your proverbial box and say I'm gonna go serve and I'm gonna go love on people And secondly, would you reach into your wallet, open it up to page 10, pull it out, go buy some socks, brand new socks. Maybe it's page 20. Buy a couple sets of socks. Maybe it's page 50. And you could buy even more. And we need to receive those by Friday at Charlie and Linda's house. Can we just bring them over there and stuff socks at your place? We got an amen. All right, that's great. So will you be a part of that? Can I get an amen? That was puny, can I get a stronger amen? Yes. Amen, yes, and if you're watching online, you can send those to us or bring them to the office or we'll just email us and we'll figure it out, okay. Praise the Lord. You're in Exodus chapter one. I wanna say thank you to Pastor Matthew, my son who uh, brought the word last week. If you were here last week, you heard an inspiring word. It really is the validation For those of us whose faith is in Christ, it was a validating message on a doctrine that we already hold near and dear to us that the scriptures are inspired of God. And so Matthew very aptly brought to us external data that also now would support that which we already hold fast in our faith that the word of God is inspired. It is infallible, it is inerrant, and it is authoritative, and it is the authoritative rule of faith and conduct for every believer. And so he brought information that was archeological and historical that supports the word of God, and so that was uh, an encouraging, encouraging word. I uh, wanna begin our study as we begin to navigate through The book of Exodus, it is an arrows out culture, if you will. They're on their way out. They're headed out of bondage. And we sang, uh, we just sang that song, No Longer Slaves. And I'm gonna see if I can find the words that I thought were apropos for us. I won't sing them. (laughs) I love this stanza. I'm surrounded by the arms of the Father. I want you to know that's biblical. Mel Jensen, you could attest to this. His everlasting arms are beneath us, aren't they? Hallelujah. Thanks be to God. I'm surrounded by songs of deliverance. We've been liberated. We've been liberated. Jesus has liberated us. From what? From our bondage. From our bondage. And the children of Israel in Exodus are about to be liberated from their bondage. God is faithful, and that is what he is doing with the children of Israel in the book of Exodus. It is out of Egypt. It is out from bondage. It is out from the rigor of bondage. And so... Matt mentioned last week that Exodus was authored by Moses. I mentioned it also two weeks ago. The first five books of the Word of God, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they constitute literally, approximately, I guess, one-seventh of the entirety of the Holy Bible. One-seventh. And cumulatively, it's equivalent to approximately two-thirds volume of the New Testament. Imagine the first five books authored by Moses under the inspiration of God, under the inspiration of the Spirit. He is taken up volume one-seventh of the entirety of Scripture, which is equal to literally in the New Testament two-thirds of its volume. I believe that God has something to say to us in the first five books of the Bible. Can I get an amen? Amen. And it's expedient for you and I, as students of the Word of God, to dig, to read, to study, to meditate on, to memorize, and to ask what it is that God wants to show us in this portion of Scripture. And so, Matt started his sermon last week with a quick theology class. He referenced hermeneutics. Interestingly enough, before even listening to Matt's sermon, I had intended to start out with a little hermeneutical lesson for us. So hermeneutics is, in fact, the science of biblical interpretation. And there are rules with biblical interpretation. And so when we look at those and we apply those, we call this hermeneutics, if you will. And one of, the, one of the rules, if you will, or one of the principles that can be applied to a text to determine the text's proper meaning is the principle of first mention. The principle of first mention. And in today's text, we're going to be reminded of Egypt. Egypt. Now, two weeks ago, I mentioned some basic Bible typology that we would encounter in our study of Exodus, that Exodus itself is a type, and the type that Exodus represents is, to you and I today, the world, the world. And when I refer to the world, I'm referring to the world and its systems, its Systems are governed presently by our adversary, the devil. You remember when Jesus was tempted in, in Matthew chapter 4, he is led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God, and there for 40 days and 40 nights, he did not eat, and while he was there, he was tempted. And in one of those Temptations, we are given an account where he is taken and he is shown all of the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus is told, These you can have now if you will bow your knee to me, Satan said. How could Satan offer something if he was not in possession of them? Egypt in this Context and in this text is a type of the world for the believer. And so, this principle of first mention should draw our attention back to when Egypt is first referenced. And when Egypt is first referenced, the connotation, if you will, or how that subject is used in its first mention, in many cases, determines its usage throughout the entirety of Scripture, the principle of first mention. And so when we go back to Egypt in its first mention, we would go back to Genesis chapter 12. And many of you, if you were with us in our study through the book of Genesis, you would remember in Genesis chapter 12, that is when Abram is called by God to leave his family, to leave his father's house, and to go to the land that God would show him. And you, re- you would remember that Abraham had what we would call a delayed obedience. You see, when he left, we go, oh, he's leaving, and that's obedient, and yes, that is, but who did he take with him? He took his father with him, and God had said, leave your father's house, but he brought his dad with him, and he brought Lot. And so he's bringing not only his dad's family, but he's bringing, or his dad's house, but he's bringing also his family, which those two things he was called out of. So he goes to Haran first, which God didn't call him to go to Haran. God had called him to go to Canaan. He waited there until his father passed. Then when his father passed, he and Lot and in the family traveled down to Canaan. And one thinks, hey, hallelujah, he's reached obedience, but he's still got Lot with him. And when he gets to Canaan, what transpires? There's a famine in the land. And without delay, he immediately turns toward Egypt. Now, God had called him to Canaan. He did not inquire of the Lord whether he should go down to Egypt. He just went. Here's a little type for you and I. You see, sometimes when you and I get into the crisis, we may be in a place of obedience in our life or even partial obedience or a delayed obedience. But when crisis hits, rather than waiting on the Lord, many trusting believers in Christ immediately turn to the world and the world's systems to solve our problems. Sometimes we just look internally for our own ingenuity and our own abilities, and we really trust in ourselves more so than we trust in the Lord. And we see this in Abraham, and what happens with Abram when he goes down into Egypt is a lot of negativity. In fact, a tremendous amount. He lies, he engages in all kinds of behavior, That is unbecoming. And in the midst of this, once it's all unraveled, he's sent away. And when he is sent away, he is sent away with some gifts. And one thinks, well, that was nice. He benefited from this whole operation. One of the gifts that he walks away with is Hagar, an Egyptian handmaiden. That later in the story of Abraham, later in the narrative of Abraham's life, we discover that Hagar is not a blessing. In fact, it's through Hagar that he sires Ishmael, which was not the son of promise at all. In fact, after Ishmael was born, and then Isaac later is born, the son of promise, God says, take thy son, thy only son, Isaac. God does not even recognize the work of the flesh. That was the byproduct of Hagar. And so we see that Egypt is in a negative sense. And so hermeneutically, one could look at Egypt and say it's biblical to see and type that Egypt is a negative influence. So as a type of the world, let us approach chapter 1. And we'll begin in verse 7. Uh, the first Six verses or so tell us of the children of Israel, those that are of the household of Jacob, numbering them by name, and it tells us in verse six, Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. So we can understand that in this first portion of Exodus, some time is going to transpire, and we don't have the exact amount of time that is expiring, but we know that it's somewhere in a couple of hundred years of time that is going to transpire here, okay? It says this, verse 7, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Let me stop here for a moment. It says in the text, a new king. Matthew gave a tremendous amount of history in his sermon last week. If you missed that sermon, I would encourage you strongly to listen to it online. It is a worthwhile history of this time period. And remember, if one seventh of the whole of Bible, the whole of the Bible, is written of this time period, it would behoove us to have a little bit of history associated with that time in the Word of God. It says a new king, and here's the interesting thing: you see in Acts chapter seven. Before Stephen is going to be stoned, he is giving a defense and he's really giving a history lesson and it's in chapter seven in verse 18 that he says, and another king came who didn't know Joseph. The word another there in the Greek has two definitions or there are two words that mean another. Allos and heteros. Allos would be like if we were talking about fruit and I was gonna give Matthew the same fruit that I had and if I had an apple and I was gonna give him another fruit, I would be giving him another apple. It is the fruit of the same kind, allos. But heteros would be, it might be a fruit, but if I had an apple and I was gonna give him another heteros, it would be like giving him a pineapple. It's a fruit still, Another king, it's a king, but it's not of the same kind. And so, it says a new king. Stephen tells us that it's another king. It's a different king. It's a different king. It's a different lineage. In fact, Isaiah the prophet, interestingly enough, identifies in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 4 that there is a king that brings, if you will, bondage on the children of Israel without cause, and it identifies that it is in a Syrian, identifying this time period. Now, there is a time period in Egypt's history where there were descendants, the uh, Hyksos, and the Hyksos people were non Egyptian descendants, if you will. Some would hold the descendants of Japheth, some would hold the descendants of Shem. Semitic, and we know that Shem's second son is Asher, whom the Assyrians are the descendants of, and some would hold that it was during that 150 years from uh, 1720 BC all the way to 1570 BC that that new king that is referenced right here is identified in that 200-plus-year period between Joseph and Moses, and so this new king He didn't know Joseph. And here's the interesting thing. We know in that series of Pharaohs that would have occurred during that time and just after, they would not have known Joseph. And the scripture tells us in Exodus chapter five and verse two, when Moses has come before Pharaoh, he says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I don't know the Lord, is what the Pharaoh says, which is very different in contrast to the Pharaoh during Joseph's days. For the Pharaoh during Joseph's days, in Genesis chapter 41 and verse 39, tells us that he knows of the Lord. He says, hey, God has revealed these things to you, Joseph. He identifies the Hebrew God. And that's something powerful for us to remember. Now then, it goes on, though. And it says this. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, verse 8, who did not know Joseph, And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built For Pharaoh, supply cities, Pithom, and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor and made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field, all their service in which They made them serve was with rigor. Today's title or the title message of today is "Egypt Bound." Egypt Bound. And I put an exclamation point after it and then a question mark. Egypt Bound. Egypt Bound. Israel, the people of God living in the area of Goshen in bondage to Egypt. The first thought I have is Goshen's pain, the children of Israel in Goshen, Goshen's pain of bondage. The Bible indicates in chapter one of Exodus the pain and suffering endured by the Israelites. It is bondage, it is rigor, and it is excessive. I know just a couple of thoughts associated with it. They dealt shrewdly. They put taskmasters over them to afflict them with burdens. More, The more they afflicted, the idea there, the more they afflicted means it was on an increasing scale. Does everybody understand that? Anybody here recognize that Bondage, if you're in bondage to something, the tendency is to go from bad to worse, from bad to worse. This is certainly displayed with the children of Israel who were in bondage to Egypt. They made, uh, to serve, They were made to serve with rigor and made their lives bitter with hard bondage. Now we're getting some adjectives to describe the type of bondage hard bondage and it says not only the hard bondage but all service with rigor not only in the mortar and the bricks also in the fields because you remember and you would you would remember just from your history that the Egyptian pharaoh removed the straw because the children of Israel were complaining and wanted to go out and worship God And he says, no, you're only asking that because you have too much time on your hand. So I'm going to remove the straw. We're not going to provide that for you. You're going to have to provide it for yourself, and you're going to have to keep up with the same amount of bricks that you've been making. And so from the buildings and the bricks, the mortar, to the field, the collection of the straw, the thresh, or that reed, if you will, up to all manner of service, no matter what it was that the children of Israel were doing, from the very menial tasks now, they were being dealt with harshly. And from generation to generation, from generation to generation, it was on the increase in severity. So the pain and bondage of the Israelite. This picture in typology for you and I is like the bondage of those who are bound to the things of this world. The things that this world offers. The scripture tells us in the New Testament the things of this world, they're passing away. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, they're all passing away. But the reality is there are those that are the chosen of God, brothers and sisters just like you and I that are bound even still by the things of this world. It was certainly our state before we came to Jesus. Today, if your faith is in Christ, prior to knowing Jesus, you were bound by the things of this world. You would not necessarily have even known it until you realized that Jesus was the one who could deliver you from the things you were bound to. I know in my life, before coming to Christ, I know all that I was engaged in. I know, and I was, from the time I was 15 until the time I was 19, the things that I engaged in that I was prompted to and tempted into by the offerings of this world and by my own carnality, desiring those things that were diametrically opposed to holiness and to a living God To the Christian, to the born-again, there are those yet who, though they're saved, they're still living in this world and engaging in the things of this world. And it brings about bondage in our lives. It brings about bondage. An enslavement, if you will. Ephesians 2 encourages us that we ought not be And we ought not view these things as pleasurable, but rather that they are bondage and that we are being held captive. Romans reminds us also, the things you lend your members to, to those things you will become slaves. It will become your master. And so it's expedient for you and I to not be bound, but to receive that deliverance that Jesus has provided and supplied for us. Well, let's not only talk about the pain of that bondage, and lest I spend too much time giving examples today of brothers and sisters that maybe you would even know, maybe it could be you, that are suffering with the pains of bondage and sin. In other words... There is an inordinate affection for the things of this world and when one engages in them, it becomes a downward spiral because the insatiable desire for more is produced. More, more, more. People find themselves in a place they never thought they could be And they thought, oh, it just started so simple, so simple. That first attraction, that first engagement in, and from that point, someone ends up over here, and they think, how did I ever get here? How did I ever get here? The progression. Goshen's progression of bondage. We won't go there this morning. You can write this down and we will be there in a couple of weeks, but Exodus chapter five verses five through 19 also describe this progression. Chapter one, definitively we see the progression. Then we hear the actual progression being played out in chapter five, an increase Uh, if you will, the removal of the thresh, the increase of the quota. They were beaten when they could not reach their quota. In other words, they're given an impossible task, and when they cannot perform that task, the taskmasters were beating them. Can you imagine being given an impossible task and then being held accountable for not meeting it? That's a terrible place to be. But that, in fact, is what happens with bondage. Because bondage, when a person is bound to something in addiction, it's something that they, in most cases, because it's sin, they cannot legally perform. Let me play it out this way. If it's in the area Well, I just, I I had a marriage that uh, I was recently involved with uh, where I was in the ceremony. And when you think about a marriage ceremony, these words are used. Do you uh, receive or do you, uh, what's the word I'm even looking for, Uh, uh, consent to be married to this one, and we use the word to be lawfully married, lawfully wed. And it's interesting we use the word lawful, because lawful in God's eyes means you are now going to be in a position to engage as one flesh. Sex outside of marriage is fornication, it's sin. Sex in the confines of a marriage is blessed by God. It's now lawful. The progression, again, in this the way is those that are trapped in the world. Attraction, affection, affinities, they grow stronger over time. Over time, those unlawful things to do. Addictions develop and grow stronger over time. People find themselves more deeply rooted in the things of this world. You know, it's interesting to me. Statistically, those who have done surveys on the church have identified those that have received Christ as Lord and Savior the largest percentage of that occurs prior to the age of 25 years old. If we did a quick hand survey here this morning and we asked the questions, how many of you received Christ before the age of 18, there would be a large number that would raise their hands. There would be another larger number, or a large equal to, or perhaps slightly smaller, from 18 to 25. But generally speaking, 80% of those who know Christ today would identify that they received the Lord prior to the age of 25. It's interesting to just put those statistics associated with the realities of the bondage of sin. The longer someone is bound in sin, the longer someone is under the influence, if you will, of the things of this world, the less likely they will be to yielding themselves to Christ. 20% from 25 years all the way up to the oldest person on the face of the earth represent 20% of believers In that age bracket, I believe it's directly proportional to the bonds, if you will, and the progression of sin. Hearts can be seared to even conviction, the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their lives. We know that the scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit is convicting the hearts of those that are in the world with uh, sin uh, and righteousness and judgment. And that conviction of even knowing right and wrong can get very fuzzy for someone who's moved downstream, if you will, in the systems of this world. Think about where you were before you gave your heart to the Lord. Are you thankful today that Jesus reached out, reached down, and pulled you up out of the miry clay and opened your eyes? Thanks be to God. Listen, there are those who don't know the Lord that are in bondage And it's in an ever-increasing fashion. And our prayers are for those that there would be an awakening and that we would be actively engaged in the Great Commission, reaching out. The Scripture tells us in Proverbs, rescue those being led away to the slaughter. Rescue them. That's our assignment from the Lord, to reach out and to go snag and to put roadblocks and encourage people in the things of the Lord. But there are those that are part of the body of Christ. Those that have received Christ as Savior that are like the Egyptians once they came through the Red Sea. Three days into the wilderness of Seir, they're looking back and saying, we should just go back to Egypt. We should just go back to Egypt. Many believers look back to their former life and the former things in the world with a longing for those, with a longing, longing for Egypt, longing for the things of this world. What is it about the allure of this world? What is it about our adversary, the devil, who is bringing before us day in and day out temptation, opportunity, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. If you've been tempted by the allure of Egypt, whether wealth, pleasure, power, or whatever it may be, and you find yourself entrapped and entangled, can I say to you this morning, you do not need to stay there. You do not. Jesus paid the price. He canceled the sin debt, and he destroyed the power of the evil one over you. You are a child of God. You have diplomatic immunity, if you will. You have authority and power over the grip of this world, the grip of the enemy. It is up to us to exercise our authority and to walk in the power that Christ has provided. God says, all authority has been given to him. Therefore, I have given you, Jesus said, power to trample upon snakes and scorpions and all of the power of the evil one. How much power of the evil one? All. All. So, don't leave today. If you are in bondage to, if you are being unduly tempted beyond, you're thinking about sin kinds of stuffs perpetually, you're thinking about the things of this world more and more, perhaps it's even creating fear for you, hey, don't leave in that place. After the service, elders and pastors will be in the front, and those that want to pray with others, Come to the front and be available to pray with people. And folks, listen. Listen to me this morning. We're family. No matter what it may be, these folks, they're not gonna ask questions. It's not that kind of thing. If you wanna tell what's going on, that's great. So they can pray more specifically. But if you leave today and you leave today in that thing or those things that you're struggling with, Without prayer, that's on you. Right? Everybody look, everybody look this way. That's on you. He is supplied and provided for deliverance, just like with the children of Israel. He saw, he heard, he knows, and he sent his deliverer. In fact, turn in your Bibles real quick, just over chapter 6. Well, look at chapter 3, first of all. Look at chapter 3. Chapter three, verse seven. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters and I know their sorrows and I have come down to deliver them. Now flip over to chapter six. Chapter six, verse six. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. (laughs) I am the Lord. And he says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will. Will be your God. Look, when God says, I will, he means he will. He will. You and I, we need not stay there. Jesus did not die on the cross making a public spectacle of our enemy, triumphing over them through the cross, disarming them. He did not do that so that you and I can walk in apathy and complacency in our spirituality and our relationship with God Almighty. He did not do that for us to live so far below what God intends for us to live, to walk in the abundance that he has supplied and provided for us. The newness of life, no longer slaves to sin, no longer under the law of sin and death, but now under the law of life in the spirit. Thanks be to God. So God's provision. Out of bondage. We had God's, or Goshen's pain of bondage, Goshen's progression of bondage, God's provision out of bondage. Hallelujah. Exodus chapter 2, which we'll look at even more deeply next week, God with the children of Israel sends his deliverer. (laughs) In one of the most severe times when babies were being demanded to be killed, when Boys were being told to be thrown into the river to die. God sends his deliverer, Moses. And Moses, for you and I, is like a type of Christ. You see, for you and I, who have lived in Egypt, God has sent his only begotten son, Jesus, our deliverer. And he says he will take us out of the world for the believer, our citizenship is where? Heaven, hallelujah. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places, thanks be to God. But he takes us out of the world, but he says you're in this world, but not of this world. And he also promises, and that is, by the way, salvation. And then he says, look, now that you're out of the world, I'm gonna take the world out of you. That's sanctification that's that's the power of God working in our lives we can't do it in our in and of ourselves I can't do it I have no strength in my flesh listen though we live in the flesh and though we walk according to the flesh the weapons of our warfare are not carnal they are mighty through God pulling down strongholds who are they mighty through God if I will walk in the power of his might I can say no thanks be to God, to the temptations that come my way, I can say no to my carnal flesh when it is craving those things that are diametrically opposed to the word of God. I can say no, and I, by the power of the Spirit of God who dwells in me, and by the power of the Spirit of God who dwells in you, can say no to the flesh. Titus chapter two reminds us, Paul writing to Titus, he says, it is the grace of God that brings salvation, it has appeared to all men. And it, the grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's just up to you and I to learn. That's that sanctification piece, taking Egypt out of us. Oh, we would not be bound by those former things. He has provided for us. So why is it that we constantly look back at Egypt? Why? Why do we sometimes in our walk with the Lord find ourselves in a place of spiritual dryness, a place of apathy and complacency, and we go back to our former things, and we go back to the way we once lived, and we look to the things of the world, we wonder about those who have more than we do, why did that person win the lottery? Why did, you know, why does so-and-so get the promotion and I didn't get it? Why does, why is there trouble in my house? Why is it every single day it seems like everything is against me and not the person who doesn't even know God? Why, why, why? And I don't have the answers to that. I'd I'd like to tell you that I do. But I know that we have an adversary. But I also know even much more that we have an advocate before the Father, who is ever making intercession for us. And he is able. And You know, sometimes we look at Abram, Abraham. He he looked to Egypt, right? Jacob, Jacob went down to Egypt. Hagar, when she was trying to find a husband for Ishmael, she went down to Egypt. The children of Israel, perpetually looking back toward Egypt. So in many regards, Israel is a picture for us of what we ought not be as God's chosen. So, I think if we were truthful though, and before we throw too many stones maybe at some of Israel's history, we might look at ourselves. You see, many of us in this room, many of us in this room, many of us perhaps listening online, we have a tendency, we have a tendency to live a bit like Abraham, live a bit like Jacob, spending a significant amount of our time uh, in our lives looking back toward Egypt, our Egypt. For some of us, we actually live there. Like Lot, who pitched his tent toward Sodom, he just kind of positioned himself to where now I'm looking at the world. And then in due season, he went from a tent pitched to Sodom to an actual residence in Sodom. Many believers do that. You see, rather than fixing their eyes upon Jesus, who is the author and finisher of their faith, they're doing their walk this way. They're looking back at the world. My parents had a Plymouth station when I was growing up. A Plymouth station wagon. Anybody remember the Plymouth Fury 3? (laughs) That was a great station wagon. The seat in the very back of the station wagon faced the other direction. And I can remember, you see, I was in California last week and we we drove down Lake Street in Huntington Beach all the way down to the pier. We got from Lake Street, we jumped over to Maine, and we went right down to the pier in Huntington Beach. And as my sister and I were driving there, we reminisced, And we used to fight for the back seat. Who's gonna sit in the back seat because you're facing the other direction and you're looking back. And we used to strive to be in that seat partly because my parents couldn't see what we were doing back there, but because it was a different view and it was a novelty. So many people live their faith that way, looking back toward Egypt. Their eyes on the wrong kinds of things. And many, like Lot, have gone in and taken up residence in the things of this world. Again, God, Jesus did not die for us to live that way. He supplied and provided for us to live victorious. Can I get an amen? Amen. And we need not struggle. So, let me read the rest of Exodus chapter six and we'll close with these thoughts. Excuse me. Exodus chapter six, verse six and seven, lest you think I was gonna read the whole chapter. Uh, he says this, I will bring you out from under the burdens of, e- of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptian. Let me ask you a question. He says, I will be your God. I will be your God. We are warned in Scripture about idolatry. That is having a God before Yahweh. I wonder today what gods we worship in a really polygamous way. The children of Israel were notorious. They were called an adulterous woman because they had many quote unquote lovers. They had many gods. Scripture would reveal to us the God of Mammon. The scripture would reveal to us the God Baal, or Baal. Scripture would reveal to us Mammon uh, uh, Moloch, the God of pleasure. I wonder if our idolatry would be like Mammon. You see, Mammon is, uh, I, I don't have time for God. I don't have time for God. And if a follower of Christ is saying, I don't have time for God, you, we reveal who our God is. Our God is self. And the head of that throne is Mammon. Mammon. If If it's, I don't know that I believe this. You see, because science tells us that the universe is billions of years old and didn't actually have a beginning. Matter has always existed. And so now I'm challenged because I don't know if I understand Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And I question. In fact, I'm beginning to believe something else. That's Baal or Baal. Intellect. Information. Science, if you will. But that's not real science. That's not even true information. It's false. If it's pleasure. It's interesting, and I said I would close with this. Now this is the second I will close with this. It's interesting to me that when Jesus gives the parable of the sower, he gives an indication of the types of soil that are prevalent in the hearts of men. There's the roadside soil, where the enemy comes and snatches the seed, just like that. Then there's the rocky ground, where received, but because no depth of root, fades away or withers when persecution comes. And then there's the tares, where it grows up with the, weed, or with the weeds and the word gets choked. And Jesus reckons it or likens it to uh, the deceitfulness of riches, the uh, desire, if you will, for other things. Desire for other things. Other thing, desire for other things other than the kingdom of God. pleasure. That is the god Molech. If you today are here and any of those represent something that you struggle with, get frustrated by, are tempted by in any way, shape, or form, and you're living like the children of Israel, bondage, frustration, Heartache and difficulty I'm going to invite the worship team, Pastor Dennis, would you come back up? And it's just now right before 11:30, I believe. It's right at 11:30. I'm going to invite you to stand with us this morning. And I'm going to ask if there are some of our elders are in this service here. I know our pastoral staff, if I can have others that would uh, like to pray, if you're a deacon, and you would come and you would pray. Uh, I would invite you to come to the front and uh, we're just gonna, we're gonna open this up to have people to come forward while we're singing I'm No Longer a Slave to Sin. Uh, Guys, go ahead and just fill right across the front here. Uh, If we have any of those other brothers that would be here, that would be marvelous to have you come forward. And uh, I want you to, if you're struggling and you want prayer, will you take a moment this will be concluding the service, so you're more than welcome to scoot when we're, when we're done, but others, just come forward to pray. Come forward to pray. Don't delay. God wants to set us free. God wants us to walk in that deliverance. God wants us to walk in that newness. I'm gonna pray a general prayer, and then we're gonna open the altars, and Dennis is gonna lead us, and then, Pastor Dennis, when we're done with that song, if you would just have that final word of prayer. If you're here... Don't hesitate. No one's watching. No one's judging. We're just believing God for deliverance. Can I get a strong amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Father, thank you that you have supplied and provided for us deliverance. Like the children of Israel who were in bondage in Egypt, so the reality for many of your chosen people, they are living yet in bondage in Egypt. And yet you have provided and supplied for us that we not live there. That we can be set free from the bonds of sin. That it is broken over us. Literally the enemy has been disarmed. Father, will you teach us wisdom to not pick up the enemy's weapons and hand them back to the enemy and say, look, bring me into bondage again for I desire to be there. No, God, may we say no to that. And walk in that liberty that you have provided for us. Lord, will you help us In changing our affections, changing our heart's desire that we would desire righteousness and holiness and purity and morality and character and integrity working in our hearts and in our lives. More so, God, so that we, God, might express our love toward you, living the way that you has supplied and provided for us. So God, will you help us? Today, I pray that no one would leave this place. If any of those things have plagued in any shape, way, shape, or form, or even just been a level of temptation in any way, shape, or form, I pray that they would come forward for prayer and walk in that newness and freedom. And so, Lord, we love you. And as our worship team sings, we just invite you. uh, You can make your way if it's time to go but you can come forward for prayer and deliverance. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, Pastor Dennis.